Let's open our Bibles to two places. I want to do just a little bit of background. Uh, Chapters 26 through uh, 29 is sort of a continuing thought. Chapters 30 to 39 is another complete section of Jeremiah. But what I'd like to lay out is sort of in a chronological order, the last three kings that would have been in power as Jerusalem is eventually going to fall, but it's going to fall in three different stages. And we're going to be going through that history tonight. If you just look at the first verse of chapter 26, it says, In the beginning of the reign of Jehoiakim, the son of Josiah, king of Judah, the word of the Lord, came to him, saying, Now, we'll just stop there, and I want to go back to chapter 24 of Second Kings. We're going to be coming back to chapter 25. But I just want to lay out sort of the chronology of what happened over an 11, 12, 13-year period. In chapter 24 of Second Kings, it's basically stating with more clarity than uh, Jeremiah's account. So what we have here is a history of verse 24, verse 1. It says, In the day Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came up, and Jehoiakim became his vassal for three years, then he turned and rebelled against him. So here we have Jeremiah has been talking to the people, warning them to not fight against Nebuchadnezzar when he comes. So we've been hearing the warnings, but now in chapter 26, we read about Jehoiakim, but this is the first time that Nebuchadnezzar is coming against Jerusalem. Jehoiakim is the king, and he's there for three years, but then he rebelled. And then what's going to happen, down in verse 8, we find that Jehoiachin, um, that would, would be his son, uh, was 18 years old when he became king. He reigned in Jerusalem for three months. His mother's name was Nehushta, the daughter of uh, Nathan of Jerusalem. And um, it says, at this time, the servants of Nebuchadnezzar king of Babylon came up against Jerusalem and the city was besieged. All right, here's the second one. And it talks about um, them carrying um, valuables out of Jerusalem. They took Jehoiachin as prisoner. Uh, In the eighth year of his reign, he took him prisoner. And then it says in verse 19 that they carried away the articles of gold which Solomon the king of Israel had made in the temple of the Lord, as the Lord said, and they carried away all Jerusalem. So this would have been the second time that Nebuchadnezzar comes against Jerusalem. When we get down to chapter 25, it says it came to pass in the ninth year of his reign of Zedekiah, we have now um, Zedekiah, his spiritual evaluation, um, And he rebelled against the king of Babylon, Zedekiah did. So it came to pass in the ninth year of his reign, in the tenth month, on the tenth day of the month, that Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon and his army came against Jerusalem and camped against it and built a siege wall against it. And what you have there is one, two, three. You have chapter 24 under Jehoiakim. The second invasion would have been under Jehoiachin and Now, in chapter 25, we're going to come back to it. But as we read here, this is when 
he came and the city is completely destroyed. And if you look at verse 9, it says, He burned the house of the Lord. They killed the sons of Zedekiah before his eyes and the eyes of Zedekiah and bound him in bronze fretters and took him to Babylon. And uh, the burning and destroying of the house of the Lord took place on the ninth of Av. Now what's interesting about that is Jesus prophesied in Luke chapter 19 that because they did not uh, know the timing of his coming, they should have known when the Lord was coming. He says this was going to happen. Now this is during the time of this what we call Herod's temple. And he said there, your enemies are going to build an embankment around you. They're going to besiege you. And they're going to destroy the city. That was uh, 32 AD. 38 years later, in 70 AD, on the 9th of Av, the very same day, the the temple um, was destroyed in Jerusalem. So both temples were destroyed on the same date. Question, do you think that's a coincidence? (laughs) Absolutely not. But to give a little background to our study tonight, we're going to be reading about Jehoiakim, Jehoiachin, and Zedekiah. And I just wanted to give you a little bit of the frame of where they fit into these three sieges. So let's go to chapter 26, first verse again. In the beginning of the reign of Jehoiakim. So this would have been the time uh, before, because he's still warning them about um, uh, the judgment that's coming. So let's read the first eight verses here. Thus says the Lord God, Stand in the court of the Lord's house, speak to all the cities of Judah which come to worship in the Lord's house. All the words that I command you to speak do not diminish a word. Perhaps everyone will listen and turn from his evil way that I may relent concerning the calamity which I purpose to bring on them because of the evil of their doings. And you shall say to them, thus says the Lord, if you will not listen to me to walk in my law, which I have set before you to heed my words of my servant, the prophets, whom I have sent to you, both rising up early and sending them, but you have not heeded. Then I will make this like the house of Shiloh and make the city a curse to all the nations of the earth. So the priests and the prophets and all the people heard Jeremiah speaking these words in the house of the Lord. And it happened when Jeremiah had made an end of speaking all that the Lord had commanded him to speak to all the people, that the priests and the prophets and all the people seized him, saying, you will surely die. Now, one of the points we've been making is that the rhetoric between the people and Jeremiah had sort of reached the point where they had uh, really had had enough, and um, they really want to get rid of Jeremiah. Uh, they finally, um, if you go back to chapter 18, uh, verse 18, then they said, come, let us devise plans against Jeremiah, for the law will not uh, perish from the priest, nor counsel from the wise, nor the word from the prophet. Come, uh, let us attack him with the tongue, and let, let us not give heed to any of his words. And now it's gone from that till he is 
giving this same prophecy that's been going on all the way through, one message, that is judgment is imminent. Um, and if you capitulate and surrender and don't fight against um, the king of Babylon, you will live. And, um, but they don't like that message. And so now it's got to the point where they're ready to do them in. You will surely die. So in the first eight verses, it's gone from um, attacks verbally against him, wanting to throw him in a pit, to now saying, you're worthy of death. Verses 9 through 16, um, there's a group of princes that all of a sudden, um, they begin to listen to what Jeremiah has to say. So in verse 9, it says, Why have you prophesied in the name of the Lord, saying, This house shall be like Shiloh, and this city shall be desolate without an inhabitant? And all the people were gathered against Jerusalem in the house of the Lord. And when the princes of Judah heard these things, they came up from the king's house to the house of the Lord, sat down to enter the new gate of the Lord's house, and the priest and the prophet spoke to all the princes and all the people, saying, This man deserves to die. For he has prophesied against this city, as you have heard with your ears. And so now the debate is on, to take him out or not to take him out. It makes me think of the fickleness of people, how on Palm Sunday uh, they were saying, Hosanna, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Many of the people that were in that group were also part of the group that when Pilate said, this guy's innocent, and three times he came out and declared, I've examined the man, there's nothing in him that's worthy of death, and um, yet the crowd demanded Barabbas, and uh, when asked what should I do with Jesus, the mob um, uh, cried for his death, crucify him, crucify him. But there's this group of princes that are listening to what he has to say, picking up in verse 12, then Jeremiah spoke to all the princes and the people saying, the Lord sent me to prophesy against the house and against the city with all the words that you have heard. In other words, he's saying, I don't have anything to do with this. I'm simply saying what the Lord told me to say. And then he says, now therefore amend your ways and your doings, obey the voice of the Lord your God, Then the Lord will relent concerning the doom he has pronounced against you. As for me, here I am, in your hand. Do with me as it seems good and proper to you. But know for certain that if you put me to death, you will surely bring innocent blood on yourself and on this city and on the inhabitants. For truly the Lord has sent me to you to speak these words in your hearing. And this reminds me also of the Lord uh, when... um, when they wanted to condemn him. He says, okay, condemn me. What's the charges? What, what, I, what did I do that was wrong, that was evil? And they, had to, they couldn't find an answer, so they had to get false witnesses to come and make statements like, well, he said he's going to destroy the temple in three days. And um, they got one guy saying one thing, and they couldn't even get the witnesses <laughs> to agree with each other. So just as Jeremiah 
is doing what the Lord has told it to do. So our Lord was simply following um, what the Father had given him to do. And uh, seven times in the Gospel of John, he says, my hour has not yet come. But then he gets to that place where he says, my hour is now here. And um, they, they did take the Lord's life. But these princes, um, verse 16, so the princes and all the people said to the priests and the prophets, this man does not deserve to die. That's almost like what Pilate said. For he has spoken to us in the name of the Lord our God. Then certain of the elders of the land rose up and spoke to the assembly of the people. It was Micah. And prophesied in the days of Hezekiah, the king of Judah, spoke to all the people of Judah, saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts. Now, he's going back, this guy Micah, and he's remembering when the king of Assyria was outside the gates of Jerusalem, and Isaiah came in and prophesied to encourage Hezekiah and saying, I don't want you to worry about a thing. Not one arrow is going to be shot over the city wall. Nobody's going to die. And um, tell them not to worry about it. And, um, but also, there was a prophecy that was during that time from, this, from Micah, the, who prophesied in the days of Hezekiah. He said that he also prophesied about this future event. Next verse. And this is from Micah 3.12. Zion shall be plowed like a field. Jerusalem shall become a heap of ruins, and the mountains of the temple like the bare hills of the forest. Did Hezekiah, king of Judah, and all Judah ever put him to death? Did he not fear the Lord and seek the Lord's favor? And the the Lord relented concerning the doom which had been pronounced against him. But we are doing a great evil against ourselves. Now there was also a man, now who comes into the, to the equation here, whose name is Urijah, who prophesied in the name of the Lord. Now this guy, Urijah, the son of Shemaiah, of Kerjath Jerium, who prophesied against the city and against the land according to all the words of Jeremiah. So here's another prophet. He's not gonna be around for very long, but he is echoing what Jeremiah has been saying all along. And when Jehoiakim, the king, and all of his mighty men and the princes heard these words, the king sought to put him to death. But when Urijah heard, well, he was afraid and he took off for Egypt. Then Jehoiakim, the king, sent men to Egypt, Elathan, the son of Akbar, and other men who went with him to Egypt, and they brought Urijah from Egypt, brought him to Jehoiakim, the king, and he killed him with the sword, cast his dead body into the, the graves of the common people. Nevertheless, the hand of Ahiakim, the son of Shaphan, was with Jeremiah, so that they should not give him into the hand of the people to put him to death. So in this chapter here, um, we have, uh, or it's gotten to the point that they just want to kill um, Jeremiah and be done with it. But then there was this group of princes that were listening to what he had to say, and he says, no, this, he's innocent. There's nothing here that's worthy of his death. 
And then the other thing that jumps out in this chapter is there was another prophet that now um, was reaffirming what Jeremiah was saying, and he had to go. It sort of reminds me, in a way, of Lazarus. Um, When Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead, um, a lot of people got saved, let's just put it that way. But there were some scribes and Pharisees that saw it, went back and reported it to the chief rulers in Jerusalem, and they said, not only does Jesus have to die, but now we've got to also take out Lazarus, because now there's two witnesses. And um, I often think you've got, you got the perfect combination in this family. You have Martha, who's always known for being a servant. And you have Mary, who's also known as a worshiper, because she sat at the Lord's feet and worshipped. So you have a servant who's serving, Martha, a worshiper who's worshiping, that's Mary, but then we have a guy who's witnessing, and that's Lazarus. Well, what was his witness? Well, he was dead, and now he's alive. <laughs> that's quite a witness. And they knew he was dead for four days. And when he started walking around, that crowd there saw that. But it led to exactly what happened here. Um, Another prophet arose. He was a witness backing up Jeremiah. And the king said, he's got to go. And so he went. They, went. they tracked him down to Egypt, brought him back, and they killed him. As you get into chapter 27, um, we're getting uh, the message now of, it really breaks into two sections, the conflict with the false prophets. What was muddying the waters with Jeremiah was there were the majority that was telling the people what they wanted to hear, and um, then there was the minority, which was, thus saith the Lord. I can't help it. I was going to wait to save this till Sunday. You're not going to be able to see it. Somebody emailed this between the first and second service on Sunday, and it's going to be in your bulletin, but I can't resist I'm going to show it to you now. What we have here is two pulpits and two churches right next to each other. And a pastor standing behind each pulpit. The one that has nobody going into the church, the message on the sign for, for Sunday says, what God has said. That's the message for Sunday. Absolutely nobody is going into the church. The pulpit right next to it, and what the sermon is going to be, what you would rather hear is the title. And this place is packed out. So somebody was, was catching on to what I was trying to say on Sunday and making the point that you're going to be in a minority if you're going to speak the word of the Lord in these days. And I use I used a typical example of the Joel Olsteins and the Rick Warrens and the Bill Hybels and, and the whole way of getting people in. Well, somebody was clever enough. They found, and where they found this, it was great. And I thought, why couldn't I have this on Sunday morning? That was a great picture illustration. But... You will have it on Sunday. And I couldn't sit on it long, that long. I had to let it out of the bag ahead of time. But that's exactly what we have when we study the book of Jeremiah. Who wants to hear, thus saith the Lord? Well, a small handful of princes did. They said, he's speaking the word of the Lord. And uh, he's, not, he's not worthy of death. That encouraged another prophet to be bold enough to say he's right. And I, thus says the Lord. Everything that Jeremiah says is true. You've got to die. 
And so as we connect the dots between Jeremiah's time and what we see happening in the church across our country is for the sake of unity and for the sake of numbers and people um, that will fill the, the, the pews, um, more and more people are willing to compromise. And um, we shouldn't be surprised. I mean, we went to the scripture on Sunday in the last days. People will have itching ears and they will gravitate towards people who will tell them what they want to hear. Good place for an amen. And just know that you're in a minority, but as we study Jeremiah, it is simply one message, thus says the Lord, judgment is imminent and it's going to come from Babylon. That's why we went back to 2 Kings. Now, the false prophets, chapter 27, the beginning of the reign of Jehoiakim, the son of Josiah, the king of Judah, the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah from the Lord, saying, thus says the Lord to me, make for yourself bonds and yokes and put them on your neck. Now, everybody here is familiar with what a yoke is. It used to be the, uh, um, what you would put on a, a team of horses or uh, um, oxen to pull your wagon. That's what held the, uh, the wagon to the, the beast of burden that would carry the load. And send them to the kings, and here's the list, the king of Edom, Moab, the Ammonites, Tyre, Sidon, the hand of the messenger who come to Jerusalem, to Zedekiah, the king of Judah, and command them to say to their masters, thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, thus you will say to your master, I have made the earth, the man, the beast that are on the ground by my great power, by my outstretched arm. I have given it to whom I seem proper to me. And now I have given all these lands into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, my servant, and the beasts of the field. I'm going to give, give that to him to serve him. So all nations shall serve him and his son and his son's son until the time of the land comes. Now that's interesting that they would say to his son and his son's son. Because when you read Daniel, and you read when the kingdom fell, um, that it says it was his son, but really, in the Hebrew, there's not a word for grandfather necessarily, but it was the third from Nebuchadnezzar. So there was Nebuchadnezzar, his son, and his son's son the night that Babylon fell, when the hand appeared on the wall. And uh, it's interesting that we have that clarification here, his son and his son's son, until the time, the time comes in many nations and great kings will make and serve them. And it shall be that the nation and the kingdom which, that does not serve Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, of which will not put his neck under the yoke of the king of Babylon, that nation I will punish, says the Lord, with the sword, the famine, the pestilence, until I consume them by my hand. Now, who is he speaking to? Not just to people in Jerusalem. He's speaking to Edom, to Moab, to Ammonites, to Tyre, Sidon, and these different countries, all of them. Take this message back. Demonstrate it by using a yoke. That if you don't do this, um, uh, then 
you're going to be consumed with the sword, the famine, and the pestilence. Now verse 9, therefore, he's saying all this, therefore do not listen to your prophets, your diviners, your dreamers, your soothsayers, your sorcerers, who speak to you saying, you shall not serve the king of Babylon. That was the false prophets. For they prophesy a lie to you to remove you from the land, and I will drive you out, and you will perish. But the nation that brings their necks under the yoke of the king of Babylon, in other words, they don't fight against it, and serve him, well, I will let them remain in their own land, says the Lord, and they shall till it and dwell in it. There's, there's going to be a, a disciplinary action that has to happen simply because the Lord is righteous. We'll make the practical application before the night is over. The need for discipline, the time for correction, how to do it, how to do it correctly. And um, so in these, verse 11 here, we have this sort of this word of, of um, encouragement that they will eventually come back. Verse 12, I also spoke to Zedekiah, the king of Judah, according to all these words, saying, bring your necks under the yoke of the king of Babylon and serve him and his people and live, explanation point. Why will you die and your people by the sword, by the famine, by the pestilence, as the Lord has spoken against the nation that will not serve the king of Babylon? Therefore, Do not listen to the words of the prophet who speak to you, saying, You shall not serve the king of Babylon, for they prophesy a lie to you. Um, It would be equivalent today that saying, and if there's, we say there's only one way that a person can be saved, that there's no other name under heaven whereby you must be saved. When Jesus said he was the way, the truth, and the life, and no man comes to the Father except through me. He said exactly what he meant, and he meant exactly what he meant to say. And you can't jiggle it around or change it. It is an absolute dogmatic statement of there being one way. So we can't say that, um, (laughs) I get such a kick out of these coexist bumper stickers. You know what I want to do? I want to add a little one-liner to the end of it. Everybody's familiar with the coexist bumper sticker, right? I want to put coexist with ISIS. Doesn't it have a nice ring to it, don't you think? Coexist with ISIS. You going to coexist with ISIS? You want to all get along? No. They have their mandate, and they, and they have their agenda. And uh, gang, it's getting to the point where, no, I don't want unity. I don't want to coexist. I believe we, we live in a country that allows people to believe whatever they want to. That's the great thing about our country. But we're not, we, we don't have the, a sword at somebody's neck if they don't want to be a Christian. We, we speak the truth in love, and we, we lay that out there. But the Holy Spirit is a perfect gentleman, and he doesn't twist arms. On the contrary, the Lord taught his disciples, if they don't want to hear, then shake the dust off your feet and go talk to somebody who does. Good place for an amen. Our job, our job, isn't, our, our job is to proclaim um, and, and not to actually um, to argue with um, um, 
Now, I've got to be careful how I word this because I don't want to be misunderstood. Because Paul obviously got into debates on Mars Hill, and he did it in a very wise and, and tactful way. As he's looking at these other religions and other gods, he's tactful. He says, I think you guys are very religious. So he didn't turn them off. He was becoming all things to all people. I've had the privilege of being on Mars Hill. There's actually the spot there. So a spot. And where he, he says, you see the statue over here to this unknown God? Let me tell you about this one. This is, this is the one who holds your breath in your hand. This is the one that you don't know about. Let me tell you about him. And he, he's the one that really can, really can give you life. But the enemy, in the parable of the, the tares and the wheat, Jesus clearly said that the devil himself has sown a lot of different ways to heaven that's out there. And of course, the big one right now is Islam and Allah. Well, there is no such thing as Allah. It doesn't exist. And they can worship him and say he is, but it's like the prophets of Baal that we talked about with Elijah. Go ahead, you can yell all day long to him, and you can cry out to him. Let the God who answers by fire, let him be God. If it's Baal, so be it. People say, yeah, that sounds great. Let's do it. So they had their chance. And people can, and they can cry out to any deity other than the Lord Jesus Christ, but there is only one God and none other. That's a good place for an amen. Do you see how you're being even more and more mar- marginalized by taking that narrow way? That's what I like about the Lord in the Bible. He's, he shoots straight. And he says, the way is narrow and is difficult. That's true. That leads to life. The way is broad and leads to death, and many there will be that find that. Why? Because they want to be popular. They don't want people not to like them. They want to coexist. But the foolishness of look at the world around you, and um, I could get really sidetracked here, so I better get back to this. All right. Verse 14. Therefore, do not listen to the words of the prophets who speak to you, saying, you shall not serve the king of Babylon, for they prophesy a lie to you. For I haven't sent them, says the Lord, yet they prophesy a lie in my name, that I may drive you out, that you may perish, and, and the prophets who prophesy to you. Also I spoke to the priests and to the people, saying, Thus says the Lord, Do not listen to the words of your prophets, who prophesy to you, saying, Behold, the vessel of the Lord's house will now shortly be brought back from Babylon. All right, now this is why I went back and talked about Jehoiakim and Jehoiachin and one of the first times that, in the first invasion, some of the vessels were taken. And now that is being brought up here. For they prophesied to you a lie. Don't listen to them. Serve the king of Babylon and live. Why should this city be laid waste? But if they are prophets... And if the word of the Lord is with them, then let them now make intercession to the Lord of hosts that the vessels which are left in the house of the Lord. Okay, so again, Nebuchadnezzar has come once. He's taken some. But now there's still some left. He He hasn't taken everything. That's what he's talking about here. Okay, you false prophets. If you are prophets, then prophesy and say the vessels which are left in the house of the Lord 
in the house of the king of Judah and in Jerusalem, do not go to Babylon. Go ahead and say that. For thus says the Lord of hosts concerning the pillars, concerning uh, the carts, concerning the remaining of the vessels that remain in this city, which Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, did not take when he carried away captive uh, Jeconiah, the son of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, from Jerusalem to Babylon, and all the nobles of Judah in Jerusalem. Yes, thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, concerning the vessels that remain in the house of the Lord and in the house of the king of Judah and of Jerusalem, they shall be carried to Babylon, and they shall be there until the day I visit seven, says the Lord. Then I will bring them up and restore them to this place. So two things here. Okay, if you guys are really prophets and you're prophesying these things, then um, make a prophecy that says that the things that remain, now we need to go back to Second Kings chapter 25. I actually went... I had Mary go online and get some pictures of the things that, that uh, remain. So, we've read up till this point that there's still some treasure that remains that is about to be taken. As Jeremiah is speaking, it hasn't been taken yet. But what he says is, no, Nebuchadnezzar is going to come back and he's going to take what's left and he's going to take it back to Babylon. So, um, let's pick it up in verse chapter 25, verse uh, 13. First of all, the bronze pillars that were in the house of the Lord. Let's put those up on the screen. I'll show you what they um, look like. Uh, Boaz and Jackin. And they were extremely ornate. And uh, these were the two main columns that uh, were at the entrance of the temple. And um, so back at verse 9, they burned the house of the Lord, but evidently, before they did, they uh, um, just the, the, the top and the workmanship, is the, they were extremely valuable. And then it says, other things that remain, the carts and the bronze sea. Uh, the bronze sea is a reference to... Um, um, something Solomon made uh, that was the laver, and I'll show you a picture of that here. And it was huge, it was all made out of bronze, and it was held up by these oxen. And um, uh, there's a picture of a person standing there just to give you some perspective of how big Solomon's laver was. And it's referred here to... Uh, um, the bronze sea that were in the house of the Lord. Notice it says the Chaldeans broke in pieces and carried them, uh, their bronze, to Babylon. They had to break this thing up. The bronze was extremely plentiful and they had to break it up to get it back. It says they also took away the pots, the shovels, the trimmers, the spoons, the bronze utensils which the priests ministered. Uh, the fry pans, the basin, the things made of solid gold and solid silver, the captains of the guard took away. The two pillars, one sea and the carts, which Solomon had made for the house of the Lord, the bronze of all the articles was beyond measure. 
the height of one pillar was 18 cubics, and the capital on top of it was bronze. The height of the capital was three cubics, and the network and the pomegranates and, and all the detailed work around the capital were all of bronze. The second pillar was the same with the network. So I have one more picture. We can't show all. We went online and it was some, but here's just a picture of what would have been used for removing some of the ashes from the sacrifices. Um, We don't know um, about the Ark of the Covenant at this particular time, and I can spend a lot of time with speculation on that. But here in 25 uh, is a more accurate account. When you read uh, in Jeremiah's account in chapter 27, let's go back to there now. The challenge is, well, while um, Jeremiah is speaking, this hasn't happened yet. But when you go to 25, the city is already burned and all the treasure is now completely removed the false prophets, it was sort of a dare and a challenge by Jeremiah, saying, go ahead, tell the people that Nebuchadnezzar is not going to come and take these things. But thus says the Lord, he is going to come, and he's going to take everything that's left. And that's exactly what happened. As we get into 28, we're introduced to a, a false prophet whose name is Hananiah. So in verse 28, it happened in the same year, at the beginning of the reign of Zedekiah, the king of Judah. Now, Zedekiah is going to be the last king um, before, he's, before Jerusalem com- completely falls. In the fourth year, in the fifth month, that Hananiah, the son of Azor, the prophet, who was from Gide- Gibeon, spoke to me in the house of the Lord in the presence of the priests and all the people, saying, Thus speaks the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, saying, I have broken the yoke of the king of Babylon. Within two years, I will bring back to this place all the vessels of the Lord's house that Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, took away from that place and carried to Babylon. Jeremiah said, no, 70 years. This prophet saying, no, it's only going to be two. And I will bring back to this place Jeconiah, the son of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, with all the captives of Judah who went to Babylon, says the Lord, for I will break the yoke of the king of Babylon. Then the prophet Jeremiah spoke to the prophet Hadaniah in the presence of the priests and the presence of the people who stood in the house of the Lord. And the prophet Jeremiah said, Amen. Uh, that's sarcasm in case you didn't pick up on it. The Lord do so. The Lord perform your words which you have prophesied to bring back the vessels of the Lord's house and all who was carried away from Babylon to this place. Nevertheless, hear now this word that I speak in your hearing and in the hearing of all the people. The prophets who have been before me and before you of old prophesied against many countries and great kingdoms of war and disaster and pestilence. And for the prophets who prophesy of peace, when the word of the prophet comes to pass, the prophet will be known as one whom the Lord has truly sent. Here's the litmus test for a true prophet of the Lord. If what he says comes to pass, then 
He's a prophet of the Lord. But then Hananiah, the prophet, took the yoke of the prophet Jeremiah's neck and he broke it. And Hananiah spoke in the presence of all the people, saying, Thus says the Lord, Even so I will break the yoke of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, from the necks of all nations within the space of two full years. And the prophet Jeremiah just turned around and walked away. And then the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah after Hananiah the prophet had broken the yoke from the the neck of the prophet Jeremiah, saying, I want you to go and tell Hananiah, saying, Thus says the Lord, You have broken the yokes of wood, but you have made in their place yokes of iron. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, I have put a yoke of iron on the neck of all these nations that they will serve Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, and they will serve him, and I have given him the beasts of the field also. And then the prophet Jeremiah said to Hananiah the prophet, Hear now, Hananiah, the Lord has not sent you, but you make this people trust in a lie. Therefore, thus says the Lord, I'm going to cast you from the face of the earth. This year you will die, because you have taught rebellion against the Lord. So Hananiah the prophet died the same year in the seventh month. So the Lord took this guy out. And um, because he was uh, speaking presumptuously in the name of the Lord, who knew his problem? Maybe he had an ego problem, maybe he liked detention. Who knows? But um, it was definitely a much more popular message than Jeremiah had. Finally, in, this, uh, in chapter 29, which ends the series, chapter 29 records Jeremiah's letter to the people who had been taken into captivity when Jehoiachin was king. Um, this goes back to, again, 2 Kings 24, 10 to 16. The, the complete captivity of Judea came 11 years later, and that's 2 Kings 25 that we went to. This is God's instruction to them. So this is a letter to the people who are in exile. Um, now these are the words of the letter that Jeremiah the prophet sent from Jerusalem to the, the remainder of the elders who were carried away captive to the priests, the prophets, and all the people whom Nebuchadnezzar carried away captive from Jerusalem to Babylon. Now this happened after Jeconiah the king and the queen's mother and the eunuchs and the princes of Judah and Jerusalem, the craftsmen and the smith had departed from Jerusalem. Uh, the letter was sent by the hand of Elash, the son of Saphan, and Gemariah, the son of Hilkiah, whom Zedekiah, king of Judah, sent to Babylon, to Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all who are carried away captive, whom I have caused to be carried away to Babylon, build houses, live in them, plant a garden, eat the fruit, take wives, have sons and daughters, take wives for your sons and your daughters and your husbands, so that they may bear sons and daughters, that you may increase there and not diminish, And seek the peace of the city where I have caused you to be carried away. In other words, don't be a problem. Don't be a rebel. Settle in. Marry. Raise your kids. 
and um, and then pray to the Lord for it. For it is, he's telling the people to pray for while they're in Babylon. Uh, that, the, that you will have peace, for thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel. Do not let your prophets and your diviners who are in your midst deceive you, nor listen to their dreams which have caused to be dreamed, for they prophesy falsely to you. In my name I have not sent them, says the Lord. So now he has to write to those that are actually in Babylon, telling them, hey, don't cause any problems, settle in. Plant gardens, raise your family. And don't listen to the false prophets who think you're going to be going home in two years. It's not happening. And then now it's reaffirmed in verse 10. The Lord says, after 70 years are accomplished at Babylon, I will visit you. I will perform my good word toward you and cause you to return to this place. Now, in the middle of this place where they're being disciplined. Let's see if we can make some application here. Why are they there? They're being disciplined. And um, yet in the midst of their discipline, the Lord shares this beautiful verse to them after he tells them, 70 year time out, guys. 70 years of discipline. He says, for I know the thoughts that I think towards you, says the Lord. They're thoughts of peace and not of evil to give you a future and a hope. Many people have heard this verse. Many people have quoted this verse. Very few people know the context that it's being spoken in. And here the Lord is correcting them and yet it's one of the most encouraging scriptures in the entire Bible. The Lord says, I want you to know what I think about you that my thoughts towards you are for peace and not of evil. I want to give you a future. I want to give you a hope. And um, then you will call upon me and you will pray to me and I will listen to you and you will seek me and find me when you search with me with all of your heart. We're familiar with these scriptures. But again, what's interesting to me is the context he says, I will be found by you, says the Lord, and I will bring you back from your captivity. I will gather you from all the nations, from all the places where I've driven you, says the Lord, which I bring you to the place which I cause you to be carried away captive. Because you have said, the Lord has raised up prophets for us in Babylon. Therefore, thus says the Lord, concerning the king who sits on the throne of David, concerning all the people who dwell in a city, and concerning your brethren whom have not gone out with you into captivity, thus says the Lord of hosts, behold, I will send on them the sword. Before we get into this part of it, what he has to say here, I want to just make an, an application of, of um, the reality of living the Christian life. And that is, let's go to the book of Hebrews, first of all, chapter 12, and then put your finger in Revelation chapter 3. As we study the history, as we see the parallels in our own country, we see that the Lord, he says, don't get the wrong idea. My thoughts towards you are, are for good. It's just that you've had terrible leadership, and because of the leadership, the people have followed the example of the leaders that have 
worshipped the Baals and have sacrificed their children. And as a result, discipline is required. And um, basically the reason um, that it's 70 years is they were supposed to let the land rest every seven years. And they didn't do it uh, for exactly... 70 years worth of judgment. They did not land, allow the land to rest. So he says, you get 70 year time out. Now, they're being disciplined. In chapter 12 of the book of Hebrews, picking it up in verse five, uh, the Bible says that judgment is gonna start at the house of God. And he deals um, individually with people that are his kids. So, He says in verse 5, And you have forgotten the exhortation which speaks to you as sons. He says, My son, do not despise the chastising of the Lord, and don't get discouraged when you are rebuked by him. In other words, don't go around pouting, you know, God doesn't love me anymore, and blah, blah, blah. Don't go there. For whom the Lord loves, he corrects. And he scourges every son who he receives. Part of being um, a born-again Christian, as we have two natures, uh, in the nature of the flesh there's nothing good, and we succumb to it from time to time. And the Lord, like any loving father, corrects and chastises. And then he says in verse 7, if you endure the chastising, in other words, you, you don't pout and... And because the Lord is dealing with you on something, you don't run away. If you endure it, if you hang in there, and this is basically what Jeremiah is saying, build houses, raise your family, plant a garden, don't rebel. And know this, that my thoughts towards you are good, not bad. You're just getting disciplined right now. And he's telling them that. If you endure the chastising, God deals with you as with sons. For what son is there whom a father does not chastise? But if you are without chastising, of which all have become partakers, then you are illegitimate and not sons. So what this is saying is there are people who uh, claim to be believers and yet aren't being corrected by the Lord in any way, shape, or form. Uh, here he's saying they're not really born again. They're illegitimate children. A legitimate born again Christian is not going to get away with sin. Is not going to get away with uh, lying or stealing or adultery. Go ahead, fill in the blank. The Lord's going to call you on it, and you're going to be disciplined. And if you're not, then you should worry. Furthermore, we have had human fathers who corrected us, and we paid them respect. Shall we not much more readily be in subjection to the Father of spirits and live? For they indeed, for a few days, chastised us that seemed good to them. In other words, um, if Dad was watching his favorite um, TV show and we didn't like it, um, he could say, Shut up and go to your room, <laughs> or something like that. I'm watching TV. You go, you go to your room. Well, he was disciplining us for his own pleasure. He, 
it says here, they indeed chest as it seemed good and best for them. Um, you know, Dad took me to the woodshed a couple times, and he gave me that one-liner, son, this is going to hurt more. It's going to hurt me more than you. I never believed that for a second. <laughs> Parents are afraid to discipline. All you have to do is the kid has to say, oh, I'm calling social services, back off. And parents are, are, are afraid to give in their God-given duty. And, and I'm not talking about beating your kid, but a plague, don't, don't let them get away with sin and stuff that's wrong. I hesitate telling Pastor Chuck stories, but he can take it out of me when I get to heaven. <laughs> he, had one, he had one son that um, Chuck had rules in the house, and the rule was simple. As long as you live under this house, you live under my rules. Those are the rules. And if you don't want to, then you can leave. Well, he had one son that left 17 times. (laughs) Ran away from home 17 times. Why? Well, I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to. Fine. You don't have to. There's the door. It's a true story. And uh, that's exactly what's being said here. Uh, there should be the rules in the house. And um, that's exactly what's being said here. But he, for your profit, our, our Heavenly Father does it because he loves us, that we may be partakers of his holiness. Now, no chastising seems to be joyful for the present. I mean, who, who likes being disciplined? But grievous, nevertheless, afterwards, it yields a peaceable fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Therefore, strengthen the hands which hang down and the feeble knees and make straight paths for your feet, so that what is lame is not dislocated, but rather be healed. All right, I haven't told this story in, in a couple of years, so for you new timers, I'll, I'll tell it. I don't know, I had to bet about 11 or 12, something like that, I don't remember. But it was the 4th of July. And uh, I had two buddies, and we would go to these, um, these stands where they sell all the fireworks and firecrackers. And, and what we would do is we had two guys keep the guy who's selling this stuff busy on one side of the tent. While the one that wasn't being seen, he was just filling the sacks up with all these uh, rocket launchers and bottle rockets and firecrackers and... You buy firecrackers back in those days. And uh, we'd make the loop. And by the end of the day, I mean, all of us had a great big bag of, of uh, these fireworks. And so um, I didn't want to have to explain to mom and dad how I got these, so I just stashed them underneath my bed. I hate it when mothers clean underneath your bed. <laughs> Dwight, where did you get these? Where did you get all these? Look at, there's a whole... Where, where did you get those? Oh, Mom, Jamie Strasher's dad. He gave, he gave them to us. Oh, okay. Well, my dad's a barber, was a barber, and he just happened to cut Mr. Strasher's hair the next day. And he says, awful nice of you to give all those fireworks to, to my boy. And, of course, Mr. Strasher said, what fireworks? Busted. So dad comes home and um, says, come here, son. 
He says, um, where'd you get those fireworks? Oh, Mr. Strasher gave them to us. Oh, he did. And it's funny, I cut his hair today. And we were talking about it. And um, I was so busted. But I was more than busted. I was stealing. And I got caught stealing. Didn't steal fireworks after Dad had that little talk with me that this is going to hurt me, son, more than it's going to hurt you. <laughs> but he let me know in no uncertain terms, stealing is wrong. And um, as a father, he did the right thing in correcting me. And the Lord did the right thing in busting me. Because was it, was it a coincidence that Dad cut Mr. Strasher's hair the next day? No. He was thinking... Oh, 40 years from now, Dwight's going to be giving a Bible study. He's going to need an illustration. (laughs) So he'll be in Hebrews chapter 12. And uh, the idea of being chastised because you're a son, uh, he can use it as an illustration in the same way that Jeremiah used the illustration of putting a yoke on the neck so he could make his point. Now, the Lord will correct But notice that with the correction comes comfort. That's why I want you to turn to Revelation chapter 3. The first church is the church of Ephesus. They had everything going for them. They had works. They were patient. Um, They tested those who said they were apostles that are not. Uh, They persevered. They labored and they didn't become weary in doing good. I mean, they had, it was a pretty good church, but they were missing the forest for the trees because in verse four, he says, nevertheless, I have this against you that you've left your first love. And he says, I want you to remember from where you have fallen. You need to repent and do the first work. And then he uses these words, or else, or else I will come to you quickly and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. So here's the correction. And uh, he, he gives them an either or choice. Either you get back to loving me first. I could care less about all your, your work projects that you got going on. Um, I saved you because I want a relationship with you. And you're involved so much in the ministry that you've left off hanging out with me. So get back and do the first work. And what I want to use here as an illustration is this is discipline. And he says, get back or else. And then he he doesn't leave him hanging there. It's not the end of the message to the church of Ephesus. But he does what Jeremiah does. They're in captivity. He's telling them, you, you had this coming. But I want you to know this, that my thoughts towards you are for good, not for evil. And that you're being disciplined right now. And he gives this word of exhortation right when they're in the middle of being disciplined. And then he says in verse 6, By the way, this you have. You hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. Now he's commending them. So this is what I want you to see. He points out the error. He tells them to make it right. And then... After he gives them that admonition, deal with it. Then he commends them for stuff that they're doing right. He builds them back up. And he says, I like it that you hate the Nicolaitans. Two, two Latin words here, Nico and laity. 
And the idea is, when you put the two words together, ruling over people. And we have here the idea of the priesthood. The church of Ephesus was actually standing up against this this, uh, hierarchy, if you want to call it, of lording over people. Jesus said, I never taught the disciples that. I said, if you want to be great in the kingdom, then you you have to learn to be the servant of all. None of this ruling over people stuff. Now, by the time you get to the church of Pergamos, we find um, the the thing that he had against them in verse 15, uh, he's rebuking them. He says, this you also have, that you have those who hold to the doctrine of, of the Nicolaitans, which thing I hate. The Lord hates the idea of anybody other than the Lord Jesus Christ ruling over you. Of course, in a marriage, there's two that become one, and the husband is the head. And we have that understanding of, of in, in a family. Or like Pastor Chuck, as long as you're in the house, you're going to follow the rules. That's just the way it is. You can leave if you, if you want to. But my point in all this, and what I, I see is that when there has to be correction, that you don't leave a person just hanging there um, the Bible says those who are spiritual restore such one in a spirit of meekness and consider yourself. Let's say you have to correct somebody because he's been sleeping around. And he says, do it in a spirit of meekness, consider yourself. That could be you. That sin that he did, that could happen to you. This is a crazy place for an amen, but I'm going to ask for one. Amen. He said, consider yourself, because it could happen to us, and restore them in a spirit of meekness. And how's my time doing? I'm past time as usual. All right, let's go back, finish up. So at the end of uh, chapter 29 is the end of this letter, and I'll cut to the quick, because I got sidetracked on fireworks stories. (laughs) There's two other letters. One is sent from Shimei, The letter from Shimei is against Jeremiah. He doesn't like what Jeremiah is doing. It's from verses 24 to 28. And then um, uh, Jeremiah sends a second letter, and I'll just read it because it's only a couple verses long. Verse 30. This is Jeremiah. The word of the Lord came to him. He says, Send to all those in captivity, saying, Thus says the Lord concerning Shemaiah. Uh, Because Shemaiah has prophesied to you, and I have not sent him, and he has caused you to trust in a lie. So this was another false prophet who was writing letters to the people in exile. Now Jeremiah is saying, don't listen to him. Therefore, thus says, Lord, behold, I will punish Shemaiah, the Nehelamite, and his family, and he shall not have anyone to dwell among the people, nor shall he see the good that I will do for my people, says the Lord, because he has taught rebellion against the Lord. The Lord said, move in, settle in, plant a garden, raise up your kids to have more kids because you guys are going to be there for 70 years. Amen? Let's stand and we'll pray. Lord, thank you for your word tonight and these wonderful, encouraging words that in the middle of correction and discipline, as they're taken away to a foreign land, that the Lord reminds the people that his thoughts towards them are for good and not for evil. That discipline is an absolute necessity 
in our lives. And we're faith, we thank you, Lord, for the faithfulness of your Holy Spirit that is quenched and grieved, telling us what is right and what is wrong. And we thank you that you do. And uh, we just pray for the rest of the night. Bless our fellowship as we go out. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.